G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across Southern Australia for this series. And we'd like to pay our utmost respects to the First Nations Australians who have told stories on this land for thousands of years. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. This week, we're joined by Andrew Barr, an agricultural scientist with a passion for the future of agriculture and its role in the planet's future. Andrew talks about his childhood memories on a mixed farm, where he developed a love for innovation, which later inspired him to pursue a degree in agricultural science. While in his final year of study, he was offered the chance to lead a plant breeding program, which led to a more than 30-year career spanning in plant breeding. Andrew shares his experiences of travelling the world with various organisations and projects that have assisted in the development of the grains industry globally. He's got a few cracking yarns which he shares later in the podcast. But despite his successful career and the accolades that have come with it, his ultimate goal was to return to the family farm. And he may well have done that. Enjoy the listen. A big start to the year, receiving the GRDC Seed of Gold Award. We've chatted to a couple of other people who have been fortunate to have received the same award. But I guess, Andrew, just keen to hear, how's the year started for you? We're in the thick of seeding and how are things going? We're hastening slowly at present. We need a little bit more encouragement from the water side of things. We've been doing dry sowing. We've sown a little bit of canola and that's just emerging. But we really need a, a follow-up rain to get us into full gear at present. And how different is this seeding to the last couple of years that you've had? Uh, we've done a lot of dry seeding over the last five years. So this year we're sort of half wet and we would love to have a go at seeding again in full moisture. <laughs> Fingers crossed it happens soon. Yeah. I normally save these fast five questions till the end, but I feel like it might be interesting to throw up the front. The five questions we're asking everyone who's coming on the GRDC in conversation podcast with us and literally just think of the very first thing that comes to your head, I think, and just rattle it out. So what's your favourite grain-based dish? Uh, beer, I think. That is a good answer. Who are three people that you'd love to have a beer with? I'd love to meet David Attenborough, Barack Obama, and probably the Secretary General of the UN. Yeah, wow. They're probably three amazing people to sit down with, but also might be shaped by some of the work you've done over your career. Probably has. I've had a long interest in international agriculture and wider than that in biodiversity and natural history. Or what was your first ever job that you got paid for? Teaching swimming. I taught swimming for probably five years beginning in it when I was about 14 in the Learn to Swim program. And I can still remember when I became instructor in charge at our local swimming pool, I got paid $7 an hour in 1971, I suppose. And I thought, that's just so much money. That's ridiculous. I almost felt like I was robbing a bank. Well, it must be something similar with first jobs because, you know, my first job ever, I was working at a bike shop and I got paid $7 now, but it was $7 cash. So I'd do my three hours on a Thursday and get 21 bucks and then I'd go and do my seven hours on a Saturday and get 49 and walk away with 70 bucks for the week. <laughs> yeah. What's something you've got on your bucket list? 
Uh, I'd like to do some sailing in the Mediterranean. I've sailed in a number of places around the world and, yeah, the Mediterranean coast, like the Adriatic coast or the Turkish or Greek islands, I'd love to do that. Sounds pretty good. If you've got a spare spot, I might jump in. What's a question or something that you're pondering at the moment that we could reach out and ask someone else? I spend a lot of time thinking about what the future of agriculture is and its wider role in the future of the planet. And that, I guess, was the genesis for the talk that I've just given at the Adelaide GRDC update. And so I do read quite widely about views from outside normal agricultural science circles about what that future might look like. So I'm keen, and and I think we're probably going to align pretty closely on, I guess, that passion and the view of agriculture in a global context. Where has the interest in agriculture stemmed from, I guess? Have you got an early memory from agriculture that maybe was pretty pivotal in shaping you into who you are today? Mum and Dad have just found this picture of me at age five driving a tractor. And I guess that's pretty much, you know, I was brought up on a family farm and I guess my destiny has been shaped right from an early age. I just always loved the farm. Dad was always interested in innovation and we started when I was a kid as a genuine mixed farm with chooks for eggs. We had pigs. We milked a half a dozen dairy cows. We had sheep. We had cropping. And I guess over my lifetime, that's changed now. We're very much specialised just in cropping. And so during high school, I really enjoyed science and biology. So doing an ag science course was pretty much a no-brainer for me. Did you know or did you have a career in mind? I think it's a pretty broad little childhood there with all kinds of different avenues you could go down. I guess I was more interested in the crops side of it and then I probably didn't know what I specifically wanted to do till I got into second year at university and started studying genetics and that really clicked with me and then I did agronomy and plant breeding and more genetics in third and fourth year. So I was really lucky towards the end of fourth year, a guy from the Department of Agriculture rang me up and said, we're wanting to start an oat breeding program and would I be interested? I nearly fell off the seat at the time. There was not too many raw graduates, well, I hadn't even graduated with my first degree, get offered the chance to lead a plant breeding program. So it was an incredible experience to be offered that. And the guy who made that offer was one of South Australia's famous plant breeders, a guy called Rex Krause, had a fabulous career in plant breeding, but also turned out to be a very significant mentor in my career development and a lovely bloke as well. I'd love to know, Andrew, because like these days people throw around the words imposter syndrome and feeling out of their depth and whatnot. Being offered an opportunity like that, do you remember kind of what was running through your head at the time and what you were thinking about taking on such a role? Yeah, I thought yeah, this is a fair amount to climb. Luckily, I was studied at the weight in an era when the weight institute had a really tremendous group of plant breeders. So for the first couple of years I was back and forwards to the weight a lot to pick their brains. At the time they had wheat, barley, faba bean and grass breeding projects at the weight and so I accessed their expertise a lot. I also travelled a lot. I went to Iowa State for a huge plant breeding conference two years after I got the job and then I did a tour through 12 European countries a few years later to look at all of the other oat breeding programs in the world at the time. So 
that really, really helped to lift my game is to be exposed to lots of other clever people's ideas. You know, there's other people that do that in their 20s as well, Andrew, that go around 12 odd different European countries, but I think they do it with a backpack and call it a top deck tour. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got a son who's in Portugal as we speak with a surfboard on his back. So his European tour is very different to mine <laughs> at the same age. <laughs> was this a plan to really start to build and establish a career outside the farm gate or did you kind of think, oh, this will be something I can do for a bit of time and had aspirations to return home? Yeah, my aspiration, I guess, even through university days was that I was going to ultimately come home on the farm, but I wanted to give it my absolute best shot to be a professional agricultural scientist and a plant breeder in particular. And I guess the original plan was to try and release one variety and see if anyone wanted to grow it and put the queue in the rack and come home on the farm. And in hindsight, I stayed for 30 years and bred a couple more than one and absolutely loved my career there. But ultimately, I did end up on the farm. How does that happen where, I guess, the aspirations to be involved in breeding one variety is there that turns into a career of 30 odd years? Yeah, well, I guess it's just such an incredible technical challenge and it's such a rewarding career. I mean, if you're going to do plant breeding, you rely on the skills of a whole heap of other disciplines. So in my case, plant pathology, I worked with some excellent plant pathologists that helped the breeding program, but also statisticians, geneticists, soil scientists, agronomists, quality scientists, all those different skills go into a good breeding program and the breeder himself can't possibly or herself can't possibly have all those skills. So you're really trying to pull together a synthesis of all the different sciences in agriculture to try and get a result in a new variety. And the beauty of plant breeding is that you have a product at the end of it that is an identifiable object that you can promote. And it's a little different to a lot of other ag science where you produce a recommendation or a you know a series of guidelines and people either take them up or not. But with plant breeding, you can see by how much is growing in paddocks, whether what you've done has been successful from a commercial point of view. So I really love that part of it. I love the international travel that goes with being in plant breeding because if you're determined to be successful, you need to see what other people around the world are doing both in techniques but also in germplasm and get that introduced to Australia and quarantined and then tested here and incorporated into your breeding program. So I loved all those parts of it and it was probably the most rewarding part for me is to drive around southern Australia and see paddocks with your varieties growing in them. That's pretty hard to beat. I was going to say to that, it's a fascinating thing, and I think the people who are involved in the no-till cropping, people who are involved in various, I guess, genetic advancements and breeding of Roundup-resistant crops, in your field of work, you can literally go drive in the countryside and see what influence you've had across your lifetime of work, which actually is going to benefit so many people, not just the farmers, but right down to end users and consumers of products. Yeah, and to give you an example of that, South Australia and Victoria in the 70s and 80s, the biggest yield limiting factor was cereal cyst nematode right across wheat, barley, oats, all of those crops. At the time, the pathology effort was directed in two directions, one in nematicides and one in breeding. 
and the nematocytes when they were released showed how big the yield loss was and for my dad for instance it was by far his biggest yield loss and so all the breeding programs wheat barley oats triticale and rye all had a goal to breed for resistance and it all happened at different speeds in the different crops because it depended how rough the variety was that was the donor of the resistance but ultimately all of the plant breeders who worked in those crops produced resistant varieties so that roll forward until say 2000 when there were really good wheat barley oat triticale and rye varieties with resistance and now in 2020 the kids in my district actually don't know what cereal cyst nematode damage looks like it's gone from number one yield loss in South Australia. And on our farm, dad's yields went up 25% over a three-year period as the first resistant varieties rolled through our cropping program. So that's incredibly satisfying to see that, you know, I was just a small part. The biggest by far influence was having resistant barleys and wheats. But oats played their part in that as well. And so some of those things, uh, they do have a big impact on farmers' productivity. Well, 25% yield lift is insane. It's huge. Yeah, it will be hard to find a jump like that again with where we're at now. Question on that. What do you see? What's going to be the next boost or productivity gain and where's it going to come from in the grains industry? In plant breeding terms, I think genomic selection is doing that right now. For the maize breeding programs in the US, we got into genomic selection probably 15 years ago, and the cereal breeding programs here have been on it seriously for about five years, and it's just starting to have a big impact. So I'm expecting that the breeding programs here, you'll start to see the benefit of that investment in the R&D side of genomic selection, but we've got some really world-class breeding programs here now that are adopting genomic selection in a big way, or now that it's happened in wheat and barley and it will roll out into the smaller crops and have a big effect there as well. Now, one area of the industry which you have had a big influence, and I think it might even tie into why you enjoy a beer so much, but you have been pretty involved in the barley industry and you had the chance to move across to the Wade Institute and head up the barley breeding program there. What was that opportunity like going from being in the oats field and the itchiness of that into the barley side? (laughs) I certainly found that getting on a plot harvest was much more pleasant with barley than it was with oats, no doubt about that. No, it was a big change. The oat breeding program was only four people because oats were a a second-tier crop, but the barley program was a big program with more people. And so the chance to lead that program at a time when Australia's international reputation had really taken a hit we were stuck on schooner barley, which was released in 1981. So we were rolling into the late 90s, trying to compete with Canadian and European varieties that were much better for the world's malt markets and beer markets than what our varieties were. So the maltsters and brewers and the grain marketers were really worried about our status internationally. And so they put a lot of money towards the barley breeding programs all across Australia. So I was lucky to work in a crop where we were under pressure to make big changes and big improvements. And that was at a time where 
also the DNA technologies in molecular market technology were just starting to be thought about what their potential would be in plant breeding. So got a big technical change in plant breeding about to happen and a big market pull for a lot better quality. And so lucky enough to work with breeders in New South Wales and Victoria and WA and Queensland and put our heads together to work out a national approach to doing better. And it took time and probably the most significant varieties have been released after I've left the barley industry and gone back to the farm. But I like to think that it contributed to that overall effort. And now Australia's barley varieties really have nothing to fear quality-wise on the world market. And, you know, we have a reputation internationally as a producer of very high-quality barley and malt. I understand, Andrew, you're a humble person, but is it nearly quite satisfying seeing that, yes, you were so involved in the industry for quite some period of time and saw the uplift in it, but actually to say, well, I left on an upwards trajectory and the industry has continued to advance and innovate. Where does that sit? Enormous pleasure out of watching David Moody's work, for instance, because I worked with Dave when he was in the Victorian DPI and now to watch him in Indigrain as Australia's leading barley breeder and the impact that he's had on the industry, it's yeah really exciting to see good people having fantastic impact. So, yeah, it's really exciting to think that you work with those people. Absolutely. I'm keen to understand a little bit more. We've talked about the itchiness of oats. We'll leave that behind because it's not a very good joke. But 30-odd years it took you to actually get back onto the farm side of things. How did that come about? Who did you need to convince? And I guess what were some of the decisions that you actually needed to make to pursue that farming passion? Uh, So there were multiple aspects to that. One was dad was probably 68 and he said that he'd leased half the farm at the time and he said in three years' time, I'll want to retire fully. And so if you want to have a crack at the farm, you better make up your mind soon because I'll have to lease it all when that three-year lease for half the farm expired. So I also needed to convince Helen and she was pretty comfortable in Adelaide, had a nice job at a local high school in Adelaide, had a fantastic circle of friends. Luckily, our youngest son was pretty keen on the idea and so... He and I sort of ambushed Helen and convinced her it was a great idea. So in 2003, we moved to the farm and had a crack at a major change in lifestyle. What was it like or what's it been like? Yeah, well, at the time I was sort of up to date with the cropping technology, but I was a pitiful farm mechanic and workshop person. My welding was likened to spoggy shit on metal. (laughs) So... I had a lot to learn in maintenance and repairs, which, are, you know, as every farmer knows, is a big part of farming. Luckily, Dad was pretty handy in that space and very patient. Also, we were pretty terrible at business as such, and so Helen and I both enrolled in a farm business management course with TAFE. That was a two-year course, and that kept us from the liquidators, I guess, over that period and improved our business skills enough to be able to manage a farming business. And I still had a lot of my schoolmates that I hadn't seen probably for 20 years that I knew in the local district and they were very patient and helpful as well. So it was a big change and did require an enormous change in our skill base. 
One thing, I'm obviously not a farmer and have huge respect for people who are farming. There's so many things that are out of your control. For you guys, there was one particular period, the pioneering fire that came through in 2015. How did that impact you as a business, but also you personally? Yeah, pretty significantly on both fronts. It was on a day where the fire danger index was 125, I think, and we stopped harvest on that scale at 35. So it was a pretty wild day and the fire burnt 88,000 hectares in six hours, which is up there in terms of speed of travel. So one of my friend's sons was seriously burnt in the fire. One of my neighbours died in the fire and it was pretty scary to see it roll through. We lost our house and our daughter's house, half of our sheds, most of our fences, half of our machinery. So, yeah, it was a pretty significant jolt. Watching the aftermath of the fire, one of our neighbours had to kill a heap of his sheep that had been burnt. And, like, all of those images are still fresh in our minds. And living in the aftermath of the fire where we had dust storms every day for the whole of summer because it came halfway through harvest and so our country's pretty fragile and that's one of the reasons why conservation ag has been so valuable for us is that you know with the retention of stubble erosion was a thing of the past but when you get a fire burn the whole landscape and it just starts drifting day after day and for a lot of the sandy textured soils there's really nothing you can do until it rains some of the heavier textured soils we went back to the old ways of digging up with a cultivator and we had to find the cultivator and attract it to do that and bring it up lumpy to stop that eroding. But for sandy soils, you just have to sit and bear it. So we lived in a caravan in a shed for 18 months while we started the rebuild until our new house was built. And surprisingly, that was actually good fun. We had a, in the shed, we had sports carpet from one of our neighbours tennis courts that had been charred so that gave it the tropical look and a barbecue table which was the only thing in our whole house that survived the fire and it seemed to be that friday nights was happy hour at the bar's shed we actually had more fun there than you would imagine but nonetheless we we're pretty happy to move into the new house when that was finished well you've got a pretty good name for it don't you you can have it just at the shed bar Pretty much, yeah. Well, some of our high school teacher friends put a sign up in the shed that said it was the Pinery Palais. <laughs> What's it like losing everything that you guys had physically? Obviously, everyone's fine, but losing pretty well everything, all the memories, everything that was in the house. Yeah, it, it's hard. It takes a long time to replace all your documents, your passports, your marriage certificates, your land titles, all those sort of things. But we lost Helen's wedding rings and engagement rings and things that have no monetary value. But I had a folder with all my original letters of employment and my letters from my bosses at the weight and the Department of Ag and nice letters from other people that had written something about what I was doing. All of those sorts of things vanish as well, photographs and other memories. And the house was one that Dad had renovated, so a lot of his hard work was lost in the fire as well. Yeah, wow. 
Well, I just can't even comprehend it. Yeah, it takes you a while to get your head around it. We had lots of help and, you, you know, for in, there were so many, I can't do justice to them, but perhaps one you could pick out is Blaze Aid. So Blaze Aid rolled up in January, so it was 35 to 40 degrees. It would blow a dust storm every day and a lot of the volunteers for Blaze Aid were people in their 60s, 70s and even into their 80s. And so they're standing in the middle of absolutely bare paddocks with drifting sand, pulling down fences with a smile on their face. And you think, whoa, these are pretty special people. Yeah. It's amazing how the communities can come together, isn't it, in the times of challenge? Yeah. And here's another example. The Buddhist community of South Australia, and I honestly don't know where the nearest Buddhist lives to me, they came and they came to the local hall and they asked to meet all the people who had lost their homes. And to every one of us, they handed us $1,000. Just totally out of the blue. Wow. And you think, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And there are plenty of other examples like that. Like our health benefits fund rang me and said, we think from your address that you might have been in the Pinery Fire. And I said, yeah, we were, and explained what happened. Right, this is what's going to happen. You're not paying any medical benefits for the next three months. Here's a voucher for the local supermarket, and these are what else we can do for you over the next couple of months. Yeah, wow. Totally unsolicited, and just you think, wow. Let's chat about another area which is close to your heart, and it's, I guess, in the spirit of helping others in community, but the global agriculture space. We know it's such a significant piece in terms of shaping the environment in which the world lives in such an important part in terms of how we feed and clothe people. Global agriculture, like you've had several different involvements and various roles that have been quite involved with it, but from your perspective... How has that shaped you as a person, being able to see the influence of agriculture in developed and developing countries around the world? Yeah, it's been a long-term interest of mine, and I guess it was really – I started getting interested in it as an undergraduate. But I mentioned earlier I went to Plant Breeding Symposium 2 in Iowa in 1979, and if you can imagine, it was held in a huge auditorium. There were over a 1,000 delegates there. And I walked in and sat down and the lights went out and the whole auditorium went dead quiet, pitch black. And then over the PA was the plaintive cry of a starving child. And then the lights came up in the auditorium and the guy talked about the impact of plant breeding on global food security. And then for the conference dinner, we had Norman Borlaug speak, who is the guy who won the 1972 Nobel Peace Prize for his contribution to the Green Revolution. So it made an indelible impact on me. And while the next probably 20 or 30 years was about working on matters for the Australian cropping industry mostly, when I came home on the farm, I was determined that I'd get involved in some way in the international scene a little more. So in 2005, I did some consulting for CIMIT, the International Wheat and Maize Centre in Mexico that has the charter 
to look after wheat and maize for the developing world. So that must have gone okay. And so I was invited to join their board in 2008. And in 2013 and 14, I was chairman of that board. Simmet's charter is to improve wheat and maize, both from a plant breeding perspective, but also a farming systems perspective in all the developing world. And so that's something like 70 countries that they focus on and they have about 1,300 people. So the very first board meeting I went to in 2008, one of the items on the agenda was the UG99 stem rust race that had evolved in Africa in 1999 and was spreading north and south. By then, people had started to understand that this race of stem rust would render most of the world's wheat susceptible. And so well, they needed to plan how to limit its impact. So uh, we were talking about a plant breeding strategy to breed resistant varieties and deploy them in the path of UG99 as it spread across Africa and into the Middle East. And so one of the decisions we had to make was to appoint a wheat breeder for Afghanistan, for instance. And so I'd come from the farm thinking pretty local issues, end up at Simmet in the very first meeting, we're talking about putting people in harm's way in some pretty tough parts of the world to breed wheat in circumstances very foreign to my experience at the time. And so I found Simmet a huge challenge, immensely interesting, and they sent me, obviously I went to Mexico a number of times, which is their head office, but also to the Indian subcontinent, to the Middle East, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Africa in general, and to think widely about food security and how you might help achieve that. There's been documented some different experiences that you had on various trips like that. I guess in Australia, we're very lucky in terms of the culture and the safety of our society. But in Mexico specifically, what were some of those experiences that really showed you the bad side and some of the bad people that exist in the world? Yeah, one that comes to mind is I was in Mexico City for Science Week, where all of CIMIT's international staff come to hear the latest developments in agricultural science pertaining to their charter. And at the time, we had two staff, an American guy and a local Mexican girl who were out visiting small farms in Mexico, and they were kidnapped by one of the drug cartels. And there were four of these gunmen, and two used the cement car to do what drug cartels do, and two held the staff unblindfolded in a house for three hours. And then the other two came back, and... One of them walked in holding a brochure and in the back seat of the Simic car was a one-page brochure written in cartoon style for illiterate Mexican farmers on conservation ag. And he walked in and because our staff hadn't been blindfolded, they were fearing the worst, but he walked in with this brochure and he said, what's this? And they said, well, that's what we do. We help Mexican small farmers. This guy said... I used to be a small Mexican farmer. I went broke. I joined the drug cartel to feed my family. This is important work. You're free to go. So our staff couldn't believe their luck, but they came back to the head office. At the time, I was chairman of the board, so I and the CEO had to debrief them, not 
highly skilled in trauma management. So they were obviously very traumatised by their experience. Probably so were we, even though ours was secondhand. And we had to get professional trauma counselling for them and and think very carefully about how our staff went about their work. Not many of us are at risk of kidnapping in Australia, for instance. But, you know, a lot of the CIMIT staff work in areas where endemic disease are problems, where personal security is an issue. So being on the board of CIMIT presents some special challenges, not just to do with the science and the budget, but to do with managing your staff and getting them home at night. Yeah, and I imagine in a really significant way that does play on your mind a lot when you're responsible for an organisation like that as the chair. Yeah, and it did. When I came home, I I didn't tell mum and dad probably until I'd finished my stint at Simmer, and I might have only told Helen part of the details of some of the things that I saw in the time that I was working in that space. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it, that... Well, I think there's a few parts to that story, but just that, I guess, the influence of agriculture and in that split second when that person can make a decision that what they defaulted to was from their own, I guess, hardship in agriculture and that they saw the good in the work that you guys were doing. Yeah, well, you get a pretty good reception most places you go in the world when you say that, you know, we're trying to help and trying to listen to what the requirements of the target country are and to work with their staff. But travelling in Kenya and Ethiopia, or in Kenya or under armed guard as we travelled through there, because the week that we had a board meeting there was the week of the Westgate Mall um, siege and killings. And so, yeah, some of those places are pretty exciting at times. Yeah, wow. I guess to, to round out our chat, what is it that makes you optimistic about the role of agriculture and maybe excited about the role of agriculture today as the world and society is shifting? I think agriculture is absolutely pivotal. One of Norman Borlaug's big principles was the absolute first guiding principle is that you must feed people. Without that, then people are grumpy. We know from the Arab Spring uprisings in 2008 following the world wheat price going berserk that hungry people get cranky and civil wars start. And so it's very important that we don't lose sight of that in our international policy settings for agriculture. And I think there are signs that some countries are losing sight of that necessary part of agriculture is to feed the planet. But I think we have much wider responsibilities. And in the talk I've just given, I talk a lot about people's perspectives on agriculture who are outside of the people you normally expect to have a view. So that's Bill Gates, it's David Attenborough, it's a whole heap of people from discipline areas, nothing to do with farming, that do have legitimate views about the future of agriculture. And so we have our part to play in terms of managing the impact of climate change and mitigating climate change. But we have a number of parts of society that have views on ag that I don't think are sustainable, that will reduce the productivity without the gain that they're hoping for in terms of what they perceive to be impacts on biodiversity or impacts on climate change. So I think the agricultural science community and the farming community 
have to be widely read and have to get engaged to debate with the general public what it is that we do and why we do it the way we do it. Yeah, we need to improve. And I guess one area we urgently need to deal with is the impact of nitrogen fertiliser in the climate change area, that distance we import it and the way it's made and the emissions that result from its use, that's an elephant in the room that we've got to deal with. But there are more. There are ways in which we farm, I think, that we can improve. And I guess the lesson I've learned over my career is that the ag science community is amazing. It's resilient. It's innovative. And it does find ways to solve these problems. So once we define what it is that we want to achieve, I'm optimistically that collectively the ag science community can respond and that the farming community will do their part in it as well. Well, I think that's a really good note to finish on, Andrew. And I think, firstly, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your story. I think you've made such an impact in various ways, not just in Australian agriculture, but agriculture around the world. And I think your experiences are really interesting. I think so many people will get so much out of this episode. So thanks for coming on and having a chat. All right. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.